Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson continues the series titled Checkbox with part three, Check Faith. Can faith and doubt coexist? How do faith and works connect? James deals with these questions as he reminds us that faith belongs in tennis shoes, not a recliner. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Well, let's look at James chapter one. We're continuing our series that has no name, just the icon, the checked box. And we know the checked box, you check a box either because it represents something that you have or something that you need or want. And remember, James is very practical. So it's practical living, uh, the Christian life, how we can do that practically. So what we're doing is going through a variety of qualities and characteristics that James mentions here in James chapter one, and hopefully checking the boxes that either this is something that, yes, I have or something I don't, but I want it and I need it. So far, we've talked about joy and wisdom, and this morning, we're going to talk about faith. So let's look James chapter one, beginning in verse six. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, the immediate application of these verses is verse 5 when it's talking about wisdom. Remember, we talked about wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask, and he'll give it generously. Well, this is a continuation. So when you ask, believe. So if you're going to ask for wisdom, believe that you're going to receive wisdom. That's the immediate application. But there's a second application that's about prayer. When you ask, believe. So when you're praying, you want to believe that God's going to respond. But there's a broader issue that develops as a result of this, and that's what I want to touch on and speak about this morning, and it's the concept of faith in general. And when we go through James, here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a moment, um, James connects faith to two different things. So first, here in James chapter 1, he relates faith to doubt. And he talks about faith and doubt together. Here's a question for you. Can faith and doubt coexist in our heart and in our spirit? Or will faith push doubt out? Will doubt push faith out? Can the two coexist? Well, if you define faith as intellectual assent to the facts of Christianity, and if you define doubt as not really knowing all the facts about Christianity, in other words, there's stuff about Christianity I don't know. I'm not real sure about creation. I'm not real sure how science and religion connect. I'm not really sure why God allows suffering, on and on and on. In other words, if you define faith as just an intellectual assent to facts about Christianity, and doubt, I'm not real sure about those facts. I don't know all the facts. Then yes, faith and doubt can very easily coexist. But that's not the definition of faith and doubt here in James chapter 1. To believe or have faith is not simply a, an intellectual assent. The demons have that. In fact, James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So faith is much more than just this intellectual assent of some facts. 
faith, we'll define it this way, especially with James because he's so practical. The definition we'll start with with faith is knowing that God can and will do what's best and right. To believe God and to have faith is to know that God can and will do what's best and right, both for us and for his own glory. Hebrews 11.6 says it this way. Faith says we must believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now that ties into an expanded definition of faith, which more literally means to lean on or to trust in, to rely upon, to put all your weight upon. And the concept is I can put all my weight on the Lord because I know he can and will do what's best and right. In other words, if I were to lean up against this wall, I would easily lean up against this wall. No question, because I know that it's going to sustain me and stabilize me. Now, I'm not going to lean up against this because I have great question that this would actually hold me if I were to put all my weight on it. That's the concept of faith. Faith says, I know that he can and will do what's best and right. Therefore, I'll put all my weight on him. But doubt says, mm, I don't think so. I don't think God does what's right, what's best all the time. This word doubt, it, it, it literally means to strive with dispute. There's a hostility involved in it. So it's really saying, I, don't, I, I, I question God's motivation and I question God's integrity. I don't really believe God can and or will do what's best and right. Now, the, the, the tense here is talking about someone who continually doubts. It's a lifestyle of doubting. It's, it's keep on doubting. My life is characterized by doubting. We're not talking about this occasional doubt that we all have, those that jump in of I'm not sure, that's not what he's referring to here. He's talking about this, this lifestyle that is made up of, I just don't think God does what's right and what's best. With these definitions, doubt and faith are total opposites. And it becomes very difficult for the two to coexist. Because one is saying, yes, I know he can and will. The other is saying, no, I, he, he can't and he doesn't. That's why he says in verse 6, you must believe and not doubt. Because he's highlighting the fact that they're pushing against one another. Now in verse 6, he continues and he, he kind of gives a word picture of what it looks like to doubt. A word picture of a person who does doubt. He says, like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That's what a person who's characterized by the doubt. He's like this wave of the wind. Now, I really would love to do an illustration with all this water where you can see what's going on, but obviously I can't bring in that much water in here. But we've all been on the water um, when, it's, when, when the wind's blowing, so we know how it affects the waves and how it moves the waves. It also, we understand what it does on us. If, if we're in a vessel that has no stability, no, no structure, no anchor, and we're just on the water when the, way, when the wind comes, we just end up what? Going wherever the wind ends up blowing us. That's the picture that he's trying to talk about here, that there's nothing that's grounding us. We're so full of doubt. We have no trust and faith in God. Because of that, we are susceptible to anything and everything that comes our way. Now, I can't do water so let me do something a little bit different. I want to represent the wind just so we can see what the wind will do. This cup is going to represent someone that is in doubt, someone whose characteristic is that of doubt. 
and this will be my wind. Let's just see what happens when the wind blows. Okay, sounds like easy. But you may say, yeah, Daryl, but that's, that's like a hurricane wind. Obviously, that's going to blow out. Well, let me give you a different kind of wind. This was interesting about last year sometime. In our youth meeting, we had played some games, and we did them with balloons. And the idea was you had to, we had a bunch of cups, and you played different games with who could blow the cups off and all that kind of stuff. But... I'm going to hyperventilate here in a minute. But what, we, what, what I realized is just a little bit of wind can have great impact. And what I realized is I could actually move this cup wherever I wanted to move it based on the wind. Watch. See, I can, I can wherever I want to place the wind and move it, I can do whatever I want to with the cup. Here's what's going on. The cup represents the person that's with doubt. And without something that stabilizes us, which is our faith, we are susceptible to all the winds of life. And these winds, it may be the winds of trials when the trials of life come. It may be winds of false teaching that we become susceptible to. It may be the winds of the world's philosophies and the world ideologies and some of these worldviews out there that are totally wrong and anti-Christ. It may be the winds of emotions, <laughs> whether we're sad or fearful or angry. And all these winds come blowing. What happens if there's nothing to stabilize us, it will take us wherever those things want to take us. So wherever the false teaching wants to take us, that's where we go. Wherever our emotions want to take us, that's where we go because there's not anything stabilizing us. Now, if we can see the difference, we bring back the magic mug. I can blow all the wind here and it's not going to do anything with it. Why? Because it's stabilized, it's secure, it's strong, and that's what faith does. Faith is that thing, if you will, that secures us and stabilizes us in the midst of all the winds that come our way. Remember what faith is. I know that God can and will do what's best and right. Now, he gives us another little word picture here in verse 8 about the person that doubts. He says he is double-minded. Now, this word is only found in James in Scripture. No other place in Scripture other than James. But in the secular world, it, it meant divided interest or a, a divided sincerity. Some people define it as double-souled, like two souls, which, which means there's a desire to have friendship with the world and to have friendship with God. One commentator defines it as this, facing both ways. To be double-minded means I face both ways. I use this illustration a lot. You'll remember it. You know, if God's to the right, Christ is to the right, pursuing the things of God, I'm going to go this direction. To the left, the things of the world, sin, my flesh, I'm going to pursue that. We always talk about, we make a decision which one we're going to pursue. Double-minded means I'm facing both ways. It's almost like I have eyes in the back of my head or I, I'm going both ways. I can't make the decision because I want to enjoy the good th part that Christ has to offer, but I also want to enjoy the part that I think is good about the world, and so I stay in conflict the whole time. It's like the guy that prays, God, make me holy, but wait a while. I want to enjoy this other stuff first. 
That's, that's, that's the idea. So this person who will not put that kind of trust in God, they're going to be double-minded and they keep weighing back and forth. So he finally says in verse 7, this person should not expect to receive things from God. So James 1 comes almost from a negative perspective about doubt, and he weighs this faith and doubt together. Now, let me invite you to turn to James chapter 2, because now he changes gears a little bit. He still talks about faith, but now he connects faith with works. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I want you to put a word picture in your mind as we go through chapter 2 because I think this is the word picture that James is trying to convey. Picture the word faith in your mind in letters, faith. Now picture faith in a recliner. Recliner all the way lean back and faith is just relaxing on that recliner. Now put a second image, image in your head and that's faith with tennis shoes on. Whatever that looks like for you. Here's what James is trying to convey. There is faith in a recliner. There's also faith with tennis shoes. What he's trying to say is faith in a recliner is absolutely useless. It's faith with tennis shoes that's real faith. Now, he says it a little differently than that. Verse 17 he says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 26 says, faith without deeds is dead. So we know earlier in chapter 1 that he connects joy and trials together. Now he's connecting faith and works together. Because the extended definition of faith, it's not only knowing that God can and will do what is good as best. It's not only putting all of my weight on it because I know that, but it's also because I know that, there's the implication that actions are going to result because of that faith. That faith, because I do know that God's going to do what's good and best, because I'm putting my trust in him, that's going to lead me and motivate me to do acts of, of ministry. Now, in verses 15 and 16, he gives us kind of a, an example of what faith in a recliner looks like. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food, and you say, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but you do nothing about his physical need. What good is that? This phrase in my translation, go, I wish you well, in, in King James says, depart in peace. That was actually a phrase that the early church used after they would observe the Lord's Supper together. They would, they would just say, depart in peace. And so that's kind of what he's referring here. Here would be the picture. If we could update this to today, here's kind of what that would look like. We gather together like we do on Sunday mornings, and we're in a worship service, and we're singing, and we're rejoicing, and we're praising the Lord, and we are expressing our faith. And someone comes in who is in 
obvious desperate need. Now, it may be food and clothing like this. It may not. This is just an example, all right? It could be a hundred things, but they have come in here, and it's obvious that they are in desperate need. But we just kind of ignore that person. We keep worshiping. We keep singing. We keep listening. We have a good time. We dismiss, and we leave, and all that we do with that person is say, man, I hope you work it out this week. See ya. That's what he's talking about with faith in a recliner. That somebody that we say we love with the compassion of Christ, but we've given no evidence of a genuine love for that person. We've just said, hey, work it out. He's saying in the same way, we may say we have faith in God, but there has to be evidence of genuine faith. And that's what work is all about. It has to display in acts of ministry and work. Now, what's interesting to me is that this concept of faith and works have created arguments and discussions and disagreements and division between people, even between denominations, because it seems like we can't agree with this concept of faith and work. Some think it's connected. Some think it's not connected. So it's created a lot of controversy. Part of the controversy is because of what they perceive, maybe, of what Paul says about this and what James is saying about it. It seems contradictory, what Paul says. But let me show you, it really isn't. One example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is Paul speaking, and he says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, it sounds like what James, what Paul is saying is, faith and works are separate. That when it comes to salvation, you're not saved by works. You are simply saved by faith. So works has nothing to do with faith. But you can't stop there. You have to continue to go. In verse 10, he continues and says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, that God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, what Paul does here is very interesting. In verses 8 and 9, he uses the word works, but what he's talking about here is this legalistic acts performed to earn salvation. What Paul is saying is there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's no work you can do to earn salvation. That is a free gift of God by our faith alone. So there's no work to earn your salvation. But in verse 10, he uses the term good works. And that's a different word. It's talking about acts of ministry that is done in obedience to what the Spirit is prompting in us. In other words, he's saying exactly what James is saying in the book of James because James is not talking about salvation. He's talking about living out the Christian life. And so when he talks about faith without works is dead, what he's talking about is if there is no acts of ministry, if there's no prompting of the Holy Spirit causing you to live out this faith in very practical application, your faith is dead. It's useless. There, there's, there's no conflict, all right? Faith and works, there, there's no works for salvation, but rather there's the works after salvation. In other words, our salvation by faith prepares us to do good works. 
Salvation is the catalyst that enables us and empowers us to do those good works. So James even talks more about that and gives more example in verse 21 that we haven't read, but he talks about Abraham. He said, Abraham demonstrated his faith. Why, by sitting in the recliner? No, by offering his son Isaac on the altar. He looks in verse 25, he talks about Rahab. He says, Rahab demonstrated her faith. Why, by just ignoring the spies? No, by bringing the spies in, trusting that God would do what is best and right. She brought in the spies and helped the spies instead of turning them in. So they demonstrated their faith by their works. So that's the point that, Paul's, that, that James is trying to make here. That faith in a recliner is useless. Faith with tennis shoes is real faith. Now saying all of that, I want to leave you with four words. And it has to do with how can my faith be a faith in tennis shoes? What does that look like? What has to be going on in me in order for me to demonstrate faith with tennis shoes to be sure that I'm not just reclining back there in that recliner and not allowing my salvation to make any difference? Here's four words that you can latch on to. The first one is to settle. You have to settle once and for all who your allegiance is to. Is your allegiance to yourself? Is it to the opinions of others? Is it to a world system? Or is your allegiance to God and God alone? See, when we're saved by faith, that's what we are deciding. We are settling our allegiance. Because what we're saying is, I know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ because I know he is the way of salvation. So really what we're saying is, if Jesus Christ is not the way, the truth, and the life, I'm in really big trouble because I put all my eggs in that one basket. (laughs) My entire hope is the knowledge and the reality that I know he is the way to heaven and he is the way to relationship with God. So if he's not, I'm in trouble. But I've settled that once and for all and my allegiance is with him. That's what we're talking about. First off, we have to settle Where's my allegiance going to be? Is it going to be with God or is it going to be with somebody else? From there, here's the second word. You have to stand. You have to stand on God's word and God's promises. Because what you're saying by faith, that's one of your works by faith, is I'm saying not only is Jesus Christ the means of salvation, I've settled the issue of allegiance, but now I'm going to stand on God's word because I know that it really is God's word and it's the foundation of truth. See, that's an act of faith, especially today, because more and more people don't believe that. The world doesn't believe that anymore. The world says there is no absolute truth. There is, there's no such thing. So what we are saying by faith is, yes, by faith, God's word is still truth, and I'm going to stand on it. It's the foundation of my life. And here's, here's the thing. Every one of us have to stand on something. We all have to have some kind of foundation that we, that we build our life on. Some people build their life on their own opinion. Whatever they think is right. Some people build their foundation on what other people think. Some people build the foundation of their life on their experiences, and whatever they experience, that's truth. Some people build their life on their emotions. Some people build their foundation on on world philosophies and ideologies. Everybody has a foundation, but if we're going to be people of faith that translates into people of action, we have to stand on the Word of God. That is our foundation, that His Word is true. 
All other ground is shifting sand. That leads to the third word. They all coordinate together, and that's the word submit. Once we settle our allegiance and we determine to stand on the word and his promises, now I submit my life to him. And I'm able to say, God, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me, wherever you want to send me, whatever you want to do through me, I am completely submitted to you. And whatever your spirit prompts me to say, whoever your spirit prompts me to go speak to, whatever ministry you want to involve me, I'm totally submitted to you. The only struggle with all of this is that it's all by faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it this way. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So faith has to operate in the midst of not seeing. In other words, faith really kicks in when sight is left out. In other words, I may settle my allegiance and I may be standing on the word and I've submitted my life to God and every disaster in the world is breaking out against me. Everything looks awful. The winds are blowing and life is happening and it looks like God does not know and cannot do what is best or right in my life because I don't see it happening. Faith kicks in when you don't see what God is doing. Faith kicks in when you see no change in your situation. Faith kicks in when you don't see the impact of your faithfulness. Faith kicks in when you're not experiencing the rewards of your faithfulness. Faith kicks in when we don't see what God is doing. That's why it's faith. And here's what can happen a lot of times is we've become this person of faith and the winds of life are not affecting us. But for some reason, because of life being so difficult and traumatic at times, we begin to, to doubt. And here's where James 1 comes back into play. Now we begin to say, I don't think God really can or do what's best and right. And so all of a sudden, we're shifting and we're back to the cup. The deal with faith is we have to remember that faith is what stabilizes me when I don't even see what's happening. That's why it's faith. So even before you see it, you say, God, I know you can and will do what is best and right, and I'm going to continue to pursue you until that becomes a reality. All that finally leads to the fourth word. All that builds and enables us to do the fourth word, and that is to step. In other words, now we're able to actually step out into action because I've settled my allegiance. I'm standing on the right foundation. I've submitted myself to God and to the prompting of the Spirit, and so now I'm ready to step out, whatever that looks like, and that may look like something different in every one of our lives. 
There's a million ways that we step out in faith and we do what God's called us to do. And what God calls you to do may be different than what God calls me to do. But all of it has to do with going out in the world and making a difference and making an impact for the kingdom in the lives of other people. But we have to step out. I've shared this before. I'm not going to go into detail, but y'all all heard the story of this tightrope walker that's way up in the air and he's walking back and forth from two skyscrapers doing all this cool stuff. Everybody's shouting, yay, yay. He goes through with the wheelbarrow with bricks in it and goes across the tightrope walker and gets, gets across the other deal. And one person in particular is saying, oh man, you're great. You're, you're the most wonderful tightrope walker in the world. He says, you really believe that? Oh yeah, I believe that. So he takes the bricks out and says, get in the wheelbarrow. It's different when you actually say, okay, there's a difference in faith in a recliner and faith in tennis shoes. So if I could just give you that one last word picture. Here's what it's all about, guys. It's all about that. My prayer is that we would not be a people with recliner faith, but we would be Tennessee faith people, ready and willing to go and do whatever the Spirit of God prompts us to go and do. Would you bow with me? I want you just to ponder faith with tennis shoes means to you what that would look like for you you may not even know for sure but my prayer is that you would desire to ask God Father what does this mean for me Maybe it's to go share Christ with someone that God's prompted on your heart. Maybe it's to begin to lead a life group, take some leadership. Maybe it's very practical social need areas to hook up with an organization and meet some physical needs. It could be a hundred things. stand and sing, worship. We have prayer partners around that would love to pray with you about whatever's on your heart. I just pray you'd continue to let the Spirit speak to you and minister to you. One, are you willing to have faith with tennis shoes? And then two, what does that look like for you? Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you are blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.